And uh, I think we'll start at verse 18. We'll read down to 26. That'll be the primary preaching portion that we have here this evening. So let's read now, beginning at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. O God, as we turn to your word now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us as we seek your truth and to continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. In the book of Hebrews, we see some interesting verses in in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, tell us that Jesus died for us so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. All their lives held in slavery by the fear of death. Do you know people like that? I know I do. I know people who are held captive by the fear of death. And perhaps some of you even here tonight are held captive by that same fear, that you fear dying. And one of the great things about this passage is that it reminds us that we don't need to fear that at all that we can go into eternity because we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in his book, Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It, the author Clay Jones relays a story concerning Blaise Pascal, who's a 17th century Christian and philosopher, mathematician. And he sums up well the human condition. This is people as they march towards death. It's not a great thought. It's a sobering thought, but it's a reality that we will all face, that we will all die. And Blaise Pascal writes this, let us imagine a number of men in chains and all condemned to death, where some are killed each day in the sight of others. And those who remain see see their own fate in that of their fellows and wait their turn, looking at each other sorrowfully and without hope. It is an image of the condition of men." all their lives held in bondage to the fear of death. And thankfully, as Jones goes on to say, Pascal was a sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after he died, one of his servants found a message tucked into one of his suit jackets. And it said this, Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one and true God, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal was not afraid to die. 
because he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you have these types of quotes, uh, maybe on your fridge, maybe tucked into the leaf of your Bible, maybe as a bookmark, these types of things. I know on this folder that I use here for sermons and leading services that I have this tucked into the side of it. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's just a reminder to me every time I get up here that we're not playing around. We're not playing games. It's a very sobering thing that we are dealing with here. We are dealing with life and death. We are dealing with heaven and hell. And so there is an eternity at stake every time that we're preaching the gospel and we're coming into the, into the Lord's house. And so we want to be serious about that and we want to look at that. But this author, Clay Jones, He was not afraid of death. He knew freedom from the fear of death. And Pascal knew that freedom from the fear of death. The Apostle Paul knew that freedom from the fear of death. And I hope that you can joyfully say that you also know that same freedom from the fear of death. The Apostle Paul had that joy and that joy could not be taken away from him because of his faith in the Lord Jesus and his, his joy was not something that was circumstantial. It was not based on the things, the ups and downs of life. It was fixed in the Lord Jesus. And because of that, he could write strange things like this. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Doesn't that sound just so strange? To be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. But Paul had that joy, despite all of the trouble, despite all of the difficulties of circumstances that he faced. We saw that all the way back in, in uh, chapter 1, in 12 to, 12 to 14, we looked at that. All of the different circumstances. Through it all, the gospel was progressing, and that was his main focus. As long as the gospel is going forward, it doesn't matter what I go through. And then in verses 15 to 18, we saw that he had joy despite detractors, difficult people that were in his life that were just there to stir up trouble for him and make his imprisonment even worse than it already was. But yet the Apostle Paul had joy even in that because, again, the gospel was being preached by these people. He rejoiced in his partners in the gospel and he rejoiced in spite of the antagonizers that he had in his life. And so there were those who are preaching the gospel who loved Paul and affirmed Paul, and yet there were those who are also preaching the gospel who did not like Paul. Can you imagine that? People who didn't like the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't we love to sit down and have coffee with the Apostle Paul? And yet there were other believers who did not like the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul was ministering. And so what does Paul say? Whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as long as the gospel's going forward, whether in pretense, verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Paul focused on the good and he focused on the message that gave him such great joy. The good, the good people that were around him and the message of the gospel, those were the things that he was focusing on. So difficult circumstances couldn't take away his joy. Difficult people in his life couldn't take away his joy. And now we'll see here in this passage before us tonight that even the fear of death could not take away the Apostles Paul's joy. We see Paul's joy here extended in three more areas in verse 19 to 26. And we see a bit of a transition take place in verse 18. If you can cast your eyes there, we see that transition from the present to the future. What then, he says, 
What then? Who cares? It doesn't matter what these people are doing. So what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So there is the present tense, and now he switches to the future. Yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Why is the Apostle Paul now continuing to be joyful? We're going to look at that tonight. And it's because his aim was the glory of Christ. And so it didn't matter to Paul how that was accomplished. If Christ was magnified and exalted and glorified, that was the only thing that mattered to him. We see that in verse 19 and 20. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. During the Apostle Paul's imprisonment, his first imprisonment in Rome, Paul is confident about his release. He believes that he is going to be set free from this imprisonment that he is in now. And he believes that it's going to be accomplished through the prayers of God's people and also the help of the Spirit of Christ. Prayer, an indispensable part of the Christian life. We cannot live with it. If we are breathing, we should be praying. It should be like oxygen to the believer. And God hears and answers our prayers. And that's the wonderful thing about it. God wants us to pray and he hears our prayers and he wants to answer those prayers. And then God also gives us help through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Paul knows that Christ will be glorified in his life or death as long as he's filled with that power, that spirit of Christ himself. Paul believed in the power of prayer. He believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that worked out very mightily in the life of the Apostle Paul. And so he believes that he's going to be released, but he didn't know for sure. He didn't know if he would be set free or he'd be headed, be beheaded. He didn't know what exactly was going to happen for sure. But whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die, Christ is going to be exalted. Whatever it is, Christ would be glorified by his death or by life, and that will be accomplished by their prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul's singular aim and focus throughout this chapter is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ being magnified, the gospel going forward, in spite of all the challenges that he faced. And Paul could look back and glory in the things that have happened to him, being used to advance the gospel in Rome, and he could joyfully look forward and rejoice in eager anticipation that his trial and further, will further advance the gospel and glorify the Lord Jesus. That was his aim, that was his ambition, that Christ would be glorified by life or by death. And Paul also had a desire to be with Christ. Don't we all have that same desire to be with the Lord Jesus Christ? And we see that in verses 21 to 24. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So here we see in verse 21, Paul's life verse. Really, it's a summation of the life of the Apostle Paul. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As he sits back in prison, as he reflects on his life and thinks through different things and adversity and trials and all these different things, he thinks about whether or not he's going to live 
or die and says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Christ was the singular passion of his life, since he was converted on the road to Damascus, it didn't matter to Paul. Either way, he was a winner. Whether he was going to continue to live, it meant fruitful ministry. If he was to die, he would be with the Lord Jesus Christ right now, right away, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so we can take comfort in that as well for departed loved ones. That when they leave this world, they are present with the Lord. And this gives tremendous meaning to eternity, but also to time, to the here and now. And if you're a believer in, in Jesus, you are a citizen of this world, but you are also a citizen of the new world, of the new heavens and the new earth. If you look all the way back to verse 1 of this chapter, Paul's writing to saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. We are both seated with Christ in heavenly places, And yet, also, we are here and now in Vancouver. We have two different residences in that way. We're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Christ has purchased that, it's sure. And yet, we're also living out the Christian life in this world. And so the Apostle Paul had these two things in tension, but yet he removes the tension by saying being with Christ is far better. And we would all admit to that, wouldn't we? That being with Christ is far better than being in this world of sin and suffering and misery. But that doesn't mean that Paul had a death wish. He was waiting on the Lord. He was anticipating a release. That would mean fruitful ministry. And so he rejoiced in that. Either way, Paul is a winner. And we will never leave this world before our time comes. And the Apostle Paul wouldn't either until the Lord would call him home. J.C. Ryle reminds us of this. All the powers of the world cannot take away my life till God permits. All the physicians of earth cannot preserve it when God calls me away. We've all experienced that and seen that with with loved ones and people that we know. When, When the Lord calls them home and it's time to go, they go. And all the medicines of this world are not going to keep them here. And so we can rejoice that they are in the Lord's presence. But Paul would labor and continue on until God was finished with him. Just like we will. We will continue on in this world until God is finished with us here. And the Lord will let the Apostle Paul know when he was done with him. And that would be at his second imprisonment in Rome and not this one. And so this leads to the third point in verses 25 to 26 that Paul's expectation was to be joyfully reunited with the church at Philippi. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Reunions are a very special time. And I know some of you through COVID and different things haven't seen loved ones, maybe in a different country or wherever that is in a long, long time. And so you are looking forward with great expectation to those reunions. And I always love those, those videos online when maybe there's a soldier that's been away for a long time and he's returning back to his family and maybe there's small children there and, and maybe the child is blindfolded or something and maybe it's a birthday party and all of a sudden the child lifts off the blindfold and maybe his father's been away for a couple of years serving in the military and all of a sudden he's standing right there. And that's a very heartwarming thing for us to see. Reunions are a very, very special time. 
And that is what the Apostle Paul is anticipating here. A joyful reunion with the church at Philippi. This expectation, anticipation. That, and all of it would be for their progress and for their joy. To give them cause to glory in Christ. And we see here, we note this idea of progress and advancement and all these different things that the Apostle Paul is constantly moving forward. Do you notice that? Just this outlook that he has that things are going forward, that one way or another, Christ's gospel is going to go forward, the kingdom of God is going to advance, and I'm going to be joyful, however that is going to take place in my life, whether living or dying. Everything is going forward for him. And when we think about our own lives, have you ever been stuck, felt like you're stuck in life? There's no joy in being stuck or feeling stuck. There's no joy in living in the past. And that was not the Apostle Paul. He was not one to live in the past. He always wanted to be advancing. Fruitful ministry, gospel advancement in the lives of people, the kingdom of Christ pushing forward, progress, joy, all of these different things. Hardships, sufferings, yes. But seeing people come to Christ, seeing people grow in Christ, seeing Christ magnified and exalted, that's what the Apostle Paul was living for. And that's what this long discourse, all the way from back at verse 12 down through uh, verse 26, that's what it's all about. And then here Paul narrows that focus down to advancement within the people themselves, this church at Philippi, for their progress and for their joy. And Paul will go on in the letter to tell us what that progress and joy looks like. That they would, that they would, that their love for one another would increase. That in humility they would consider the needs of others ahead of their own. That they are to do all things without grumbling and complaining. That they are to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. All these different areas the Apostle Paul is going to unpack for them in how to live and how to walk in a worthy manner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? All for the glory of Christ and for the good of God's people. That's what the Apostle Paul wanted. That was his motivation in the ministry. It was the glory of Christ and the good of the church. And that should be the motivation of every single minister, every single elder, every single deacon and leader in the church should be motivated by the glory of Christ and the good of the church progress and joy and the glory of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul served, and that should be our aim in serving, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ for the good of all people. That was the way that Paul went about the ministry. Now, in our final 10 or so minutes here, I just want to just want to go back, and there's many, many things that we could look at here in this passage, many different applications that could be made concerning the Holy Spirit's empowerment in the believer's life and helping us as we live out the Christian faith. We could look at the place of prayer in the believer's life. Paul as a pattern for pastoral ministry. We could look at fruit in the believer's life. We could look at this idea of full courage. I love how the Apostle Paul writes that, full courage. We're in a, living in an age where each one of us needs to have courage as we live out our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to go back to verse 21. I want to go back to Paul's life verse. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of those verses in the Bible that you can't just gloss over and move on. It's one of those verses 
in the Bible that leaps off of the page. And so let's uh, just look at that just for a, a brief few moments here. This idea, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of the reasons why it, it leaps off the page to us is that it is so counterintuitive to our world and to the ways that we often think. Death is not great gain at all to most people. It's a great loss. Death is a great, great loss. And Matthew Henry gives us the reason why some people would feel this way. Matthew Henry says this, Death is a great loss to a carnal, worldly man, for he loses all of his comforts and all of his hopes. Worldliness, that could be one reason why we don't view death as gain, but a great loss. Worldliness, we're too in love with the things of this world. If we're honest with ourselves, we really enjoy all the creature comforts of this world. And so it's a sad thing for us if we were to depart from it. We're not comfortable with the thought of dying because we haven't been careful about the way that we're living. And so worldliness is a great thing in our lives that we need to combat against. And Matthew Henry goes on to contrast the mindset of the worldly person with the mindset of what he calls a good Christian. And he says this, To a good Christian it is gain, of course talking about death, It is gain, for it is the end of all of his weakness and misery and the perfection of his comforts and accomplishment of his hopes. It delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to the possession of the chief good. All those to whom to live is Christ, to them to die will be gain. It is great gain, a present gain, an everlasting gain. That's a great quote from Matthew Henry. Do you view dying as gain? Do you view dying as gain? Our world does not. We see all these billionaires and their longevity projects, right? How are we going to live longer? How are we going to live forever? Cryogenics and all these different things. People do not want to die. They motivated as this book that I mentioned at the beginning, this book called Immortal by Clay Jones. He talks about the motivations that people have to continue on living and all these longevity ideas because people are fearful of death. They're afraid to embrace death and to die. But Paul says here, that's the, that's the last half of the verse, and I want to deal um, lastly with, with the first half of the verse. Six words, three points. To me, to live is Christ. To me, to live is Christ. This really is the essence of the Christian life here. These six words and three points. To me, to me. So what do, we, what do we see there? Well, we see that it's personal. It's personal. To me, the Apostle Paul says, you are not born a Christian. You must be born again. You may have grown up in a home where you have Christian parents, the blessing of Christian parents. You may have grown up in a Christian church. You may have been baptized as an infant or otherwise. And you may have all of these good blessings. But you must be born again. It is personal. It is to me the Apostle Paul says, you must rest and repose wholly and solely upon Christ alone for your salvation. No one else can do it for you. You cannot ride the coattails of your parents to heaven. You cannot ride the coattails of your spouse to heaven. You must be born again. You must accept the person and work of Christ on your behalf for salvation or you are lost for all of eternity 
lost. It's not good enough to be close to the kingdom of God or close to other Christians or close to people who go to church. The Lord Jesus has some of the scariest words in the entire Bible in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a tragedy that would be. Somebody so close to the kingdom of God. Somebody who's prophesying. Somebody who is doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And yet, they're lost. It's not personal. It is not to me. Jesus demands that we accept him. That we come to him in faith and repentance, and we do that individually. It's personal. There must be intimacy. We know him, and he declares us as his own. So we can say that the Christian life is personal. It is to me, and then also it's practical to live. It's very practical. Christianity is practical to me to live. We live out our faith. Every moment of our day is spent in the presence of of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live out our life before the Lord. He sees all that we do. He knows all that we think. He hears all that we say. He knows all of the grudges, the bitterness, the hatred that we have in our hearts. Sometimes even towards our brothers and sisters. All the gossip, the slander. He sees everything. And one of the great preventions to living that way, of course, is spending time in prayer and in the word. We need to do that. It's no wonder that if our Bible is gathering dust and we never pause to pray that our life will begin to unravel, that we will be very uncareful about the way that we are living. And positively, there are good works that we engage in when we are living the way that the Lord would want us to, when we are living in this way like the Apostle Paul, like prayer, like serving, like meeting the needs of others like esteeming others is better than ourselves, using our gifts, all of these draw us into a deeper fellowship with the Lord. There's intimacy in those things. Yesterday and even today, I got to spend some time with my grandson, and I always love to spend time with him. He's such a riot just to, just to be with and to play with and to watch, and when I have to watch him, I, I'm not uh, grudging or bid, bitter about that. I love to watch him. It's not an imposition at all to be able to spend time with him. It's a great joy and a privilege to be able to do that, and I love it. I love to spend that time with him. And as God's children, as a child of God, as someone who lives to spend time, lives our life out in front of and before and with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's always going to be time well spent. Always time well spent. Any time you spend on your knees, any time you spend in your Bible, any time you spend serving, any time you spend using your gifts that the Lord has given, given you, all of these things will always be time well spent. So Christianity is personal and it's practical. Every moment spent with him, every matter shared with him, every hurt shared with him, all of our fears and cares, concerns, hopes for the future, sins of the past and the present, even the future, 
all of those things, all of it. We can bring it all to him and we can leave it all with him. He takes it all. And the, he is the friend who sticks closer than the brother. He will never leave us or forsake us. So Christianity is personal, it's practical. And then lastly, we see here that it is Christ. To me, to live is Christ. That is the aim. That is the goal. That is all of, that should be all of our aims is Christ. And in him, all things are possible. So if you need another P, if you need another P, that it's personal, it's practical. Lastly, it is possible because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can live out our faith. Have you ever talked to someone who said, well, I've tried Christianity, but it doesn't work. I've tried to live righteously, it just doesn't work. So they give up. But you know what? They're right. You can't do it. You can't do it on your own. That's the, that's the point that we see here. In him, all things are possible. It is Christ. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. They're right. And the good news is that we can't do it on our own. We must repose upon Christ alone for salvation. We need the Lord's power and strength at work within us. And we see the Apostle Paul, even in this chapter, way back in verse 6 of this chapter, we see him talking about this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's impossible on our own. We need the Spirit of Christ at work within us and he is covenanted with us that when he saves us he's going to see to it that he brings that work to completion that 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 salvation will lead to glorification that we will be with him in the end one commentator states christianity is possible only through christ it is available to all in christ and it is attainable by all through christ We need to remember that we are all under construction. God is still doing a work in us. We are a work in progress. We require God's help, the Holy Spirit's help and strength, even to live 60 seconds in this world in a way that honors him and glorifies him. We need the Lord's help to do that continually. We can't do it on our own, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. To me, to live is Christ. It's personal It's practical and it's possible because of what the Lord has done for us. Do you know him? Are you resting and reposing solely on Christ alone for salvation? If you are, dying will be gain. It will be great gain. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you give us a way forward to live in this life and you give us comfort in the hour of death. So, O Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you would help us to walk soberly in this world, and that you'd help us to honor you in all things, that that would be our sole aim and purpose and goal in this life, would be to see you exalted and magnified and glorified in all of the things that we are engaged in. And those things that don't glorify you, we pray that you would help us to put those aside and behind and to repent and to seek you with all of our heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn will be 541, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, and then our doxology.